following sermon is from Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you've never reached out to Calvary before, we'd like to hear from you. Visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. And now, here's Dr. Dan. you have your copy of the scriptures, join me if you would in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. As I mentioned, our church has been struck by uh, cancer. Our family, as a church, is enduring cancer. And I thought about that. I, I said, you know, it, in a way, living in the day that we do, cancer doesn't seem all that out of the ordinary. It doesn't seem abnormal I suppose unless you're going through it but I stepped back and I said no it's it is abnormal the world that God created was not intended to experience cancer for that matter it was not intended to know what it means to talk of wars and rumors of war it was not intended to know corrupt politicians it wasn't intended to know about pastors who fail their moral obligations. It was not intended to know a global pandemic that strikes fear in the hearts of the people from around the globe. It was not intended to know that. It is as if the world is broken. And that, my friends, is because it is broken. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, all of humanity throughout history has been suffering the consequences. But for the person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, we hope for something new, something better. We hope for a time when we will be reunited with God the Father. A time when all that is broken is fixed. A time when sin's curse is undone. We hope for heaven where the Father sits. In Revelation 4, the Apostle John sees a vision of God the Father, seated on His throne as those dwelling in heaven gather around Him to worship. From Revelation 4, we learn what humanity has forgotten. We learn that God sits on the throne of heaven and He deserves to be worshipped. When we gather for worship, we get a foretaste of heaven. We see this in Revelation 4. Please stand, if you would, in honor of the reading of God's Word, if you're able to. Revelation 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You and praise You for today. We thank You um, for the opportunity to set time aside in this broken world and fix our gaze on You rather than the busyness of the week, the worries of the world, the cares of life. Let us this hour set time aside to be in Your presence and the presence of each other as we reflect on Your glory give you praise. Bless this time in the Word. Let it edify the believer. And let the one who is yet to call on Jesus for salvation be moved 
to come to you, Lord Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We've moved on to a new section of the book of Revelation, and so to help us keep our minds sort of wrapped around this complicated and complex book, I want to remind you of the brief overview of the book, and then we'll dig into our chapter. In chapter 1, John the Apostle, we learn, is on the island of Patmos, which is a prison. It's like the ancient Alcatraz, and there he is in worship on the Lord's Day, I presume a Sunday. And then he receives, he's in the Spirit, and he receives inspiration. He is revealed from God. He receives revelation from God. The things that are, the things that were, and what things which will be to come. And then in chapter 2 and 3, we see those seven letters to the seven churches. And in there, Jesus assesses those churches. And he says, here's what's good, and here's what's not so good. And he calls on the churches to grow in holiness and godliness and faithfulness. And then in chapter 6 through 20, what we see is the events unfolding where Jesus pours out judgment on the earth for our rebellion against Him. Understand this. What heaven knows and what mankind has forgotten is this. God deserves to be worshipped. And Jesus comes to offer salvation for those who are in rebellion against Him. And then the judgment comes later in human history where He judges those not only for refusing to honor God as God, but also rejecting the offer of salvation as though it were a thumb in the eye one last time by the dwellers of earth. But in chapter 4 and 5, we see the stages set Central, grand central station, the, the place from which God's justice pours out. That judgment is set against the backdrop of worship, the holiness of God. For the problem on earth is that mankind refuses to honor God as God or give Him thanks. If you've been paying attention at all over the last few years, it is hard, hard to ignore and avoid coming to the conclusion that the human race, particularly in the United States, does not want to honor God as God or give thanks to Him. In verse 1, John is invited to heaven where God's future plans be revealed. The one who invited Him is none other than Jesus Himself. Verse 1, After this I looked, after the things that we saw in chapters 1-3, through after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, that was Jesus, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And so a door in heaven stood open. It's The emphasis there in the Greek text is on the fact that it has been opened, and it is opened for us because we can come there through faith in Jesus, but now this is portrayed vividly to the Apostle John, and he is allowed then, he's invited then, to come into heaven and see God. A door to heaven stood open, and he was invited to come in. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot see heaven, John 3.3. Are you born again? 
Have you called on Jesus for salvation? No one comes to the Father except through Me, said Jesus in John 14, verse 6. Those who won't come to Jesus will be judged by Jesus. Revelation 4 and 5 sets the stage for God's judgment on earth through a time called the Great Tribulation. That stage is God's throne room in heaven. In verse 2 and 3, John is invited to see God on His throne in heaven. At once I was in the Spirit where He would receive inspiration. Inspiration is something that's I would say mysterious, but it is a work of God. A person cannot intentionally enter into a trance in order to receive a word from God. The Holy Spirit moves as God directs. In inspiration, the Word of God comes forth. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Jasper was a a green, translucent stone, and carnelian was red. I think the green represents the fact that God has always lived. Green is the color that represents life, but it's sort of see-through. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Where it says a rainbow, there's some discussion. Is this referring to the shape or the colors? Or both. I think it's the shape and the colors. I think it's built on what the the fl- what happened after the flood when God made a covenant promising never to destroy the earth with a flood once again. But if you've read through the book of Revelation, you know that God does destroy the earth, just not with a flood. And so we see this rainbow here. And what stands out to John, to John as he's looking at the scene is the emerald color, the green color in this rainbow. And so mention of it. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 elders and seated on the throne, I'm sorry, seated around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with crowns on their heads. Who are these people? Well, most likely, I believe they are a representation. There are 12 Old Testament tribes And each tribe would have had an elder, someone who represented the interests of the people. And so those 12 elders are standing before God representing the interests of the Old Testament saints in the presence of God. And the other 12 are the apostles who stand before God representing our interests before God. They're wearing white garments. This speaks of their righteousness. As Christians, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and so that is a physical representation of that of those white of of our clothes in Christ's righteousness. And then they have golden crowns on their heads. These are not king's crowns. The king's crown is a diadem. These are victor's crowns, Stephanos. They are golden crowns. They have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Verse five. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. This reminds us of Mount Sinai when God gave the law to Moses. You may recall it. There was thunders and lightning and and the people were terrified. This was their God, but they they told Moses, you go ahead and go up the mountain because if we go up there, we will die. 
And so this is the throne of God, and out from come it come, it come lightning and thunder. Let's continue. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. This is a somewhat confusing understanding here, a somewhat confusing thing to understand, but I think the best way to understand it is that this, these seven torches represent the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the church. Our proclamation, uh, our, our testimony, our righteousness, and the work of the Holy Spirit through the people of God to lead people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And so there we see the church already there. This is a vision of the future. Most likely by the time this vision is fulfilled, the church has been raptured. And they are standing there. We are standing there in the presence of God. This is a future thing we're looking at. Verse 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. This reflects the, 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 the there was an and when the temple was built in Israel in Solomon's reign, there was a thing in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 23. They called it a sea. It was like a large basin, and the priests would come in and wash themselves to prepare to be in the presence of a holy God. You don't just walk into God's presence pretty as you please. And so there's this giant sea that shows up also later in the book of Revelation. Because we have been cleansed, allowing us to stand before a holy God. One of the interesting things when you study the Old Testament imagery, whether it's in the temple or the tabernacle or, or any of those things, oftentimes you can see that the physical representations, the physical things in those temples represent heavenly realities. And so that sea that was made in the temple to purify the priests has a heavenly reality that is analogous to it, that corresponds with it. And so they, there they are. Let's continue. And, on the, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. This is unique. These are most likely the cherubim that you read about in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10. They have eyes all around. It seems that the purpose of the cherubim, they're reason for existence was to fixate on the glory of God and proclaim His holiness. I think the reason they had so many eyes is not only could they see God in front of them, they could then see what God was doing in the world and they keep saying, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of His glory. Let's continue. The first living creature, like a lion, majestic, untamed, the second living creature like an ox, speaking of its strength and patient endurance and labor, representing God in that way. The third living creature was the face of a man with our intelligence and the fact that we represent God as His image bearers. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, sovereign, has vision over all. And so here we see the identity of the characters around the throne room. The church is represented there in these torches. And then we have 24 elders representing Old Testament and New Testament saints. They've conquered the, the world because of Jesus. And there's this sea of glass cleansing them, allowing them to be standing before God. Just as vessels used for priestly service in Israel's temple were to reflect the throne room of heaven, 
so too should our worship as New Testament saints reflect worship in heaven. The worship of New Testament saints should reflect worship in heaven. If, if you've been paying attention to the church at all, it seems of late we've gotten weak. Can I suggest to you, you know, I'm going to tell you plainly, that the weakness of the church is not because we lack good educational institutions. We've got those. It's not because we lack publishing companies. We've had those. They didn't have them in the first hundred years of the church. Actually, it took quite a while to have publishing. The weakness of the church seems to stem from our weakness of worship. See, in heaven, worshiping God is a priority. There has been a shift in American Christianity where worship is not quite the priority that it once was. And we are weaker because of it. Some of you, I had the opportunity to pray this morning with some gentlemen who have seen a lot over the years. And one of the things that has shifted is that it has gone from church being worship being every week. It was a priority for the Christian. Then it was three times a week. The average Christian goes to church twice a month now. That's what the statistics are. If you wonder why the church has gotten weak, it is because our worship has gotten weak. It's not a priority. Other things are a priority over worshiping the living God. There was a a note that I put in that I left out, and I think I'm going to say it. If you're not interested in worshiping God now, why would you want to spend eternity worshiping Him in heaven? In heaven, worship is the priority. And so there, those who are gathered around God's throne are worshiping Him in this scene. And those who gather in the future will worship Him. In verse 8-11, through 11, John is permitted to see that worship in heaven. And the four living creatures, each of them, with six wings are full of eyes and all around and within. And day and night, they, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He is eternal. He's, he's, he was there before we existed. There never was a time that God did not exist. Who was, is, and is to come. His return is imminent. Verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their thrones before the throne saying, Worthy are You, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were existed. Were created. This is a spontaneous act of worship that is inspired. The proclamation of God's holiness then inspires the cherubim. The elders and cherubim are now joining together. It's like they're feeding on each other. As they worship God, the other responds in worship. The whole earth is full of His glory. You're worthy to receive honor and power 
for you created all things. You're the creator. You're holy. You're eternal. There is nothing on this earth that can compare to this. This is what heaven knows, but earth has forgotten. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned and were driven out of the garden of Eden, away from God's presence, no one, either male nor female, has been permitted to see God because we are sinful and God is holy. No one can see God and live. Exodus 33.20 Moses, when he went up Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, something unique happened. He got to see God. But only his back, not his face. He was not permitted to have that level of intimacy, that fellowship with God. And so John, like Ezekiel and Isaiah before him, he is allowed to see a vision of God the Father, and then he writes down what he sees. And on the throne sits God Almighty, the Holy One, the Father, who sits approachable light. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, 13-16. This God we could not come to. This is what it says. Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who, who, who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. That Keep it holy and perfectly. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time, He who is at the who who is the blessed and sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see, to Him be eternal dominion, forever and ever. God the Father is unapproachably holy. God the Son came to make it possible for us to be reconciled to Him. And so the good news is that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Translation, you belong in heaven. Our true citizenship is in heaven. When you watch the news tonight, it's bad news. I looked at some of the headlines from yesterday. There's more wars and rumors of wars taking place. More countries are taking up sides against other countries. Warning each other, threatening each other, forming, milit filling ec forming economic alliances. Thus has it been, thus shall it be until Christ returns. But you, Christian, your real citizenship is in heaven. We have dual citizenship. We're American citizens and we do what we can to bring glory to God and, and encourage our leaders to function and govern in ways that give honor and glory to God, to surrender to Him, to submit to Him. But our true citizenship is in heaven from which we await the return of the Savior. Only Christ Jesus has stood in God the Father's presence and seen Him face to face. He is the door. No man comes to the Father except through Him. Have you come to the Father through Jesus? One day we will all stand before God the Father in heaven and there we will worship Him.
the elders and the cherubim in verses 8-11 through 11 are so filled with awe of the holiness and majesty of God and His glory that they never cease to worship Him. This isn't being forced. This isn't, listen, when I was a kid, I, I, I'm a dad, maybe go to church. I didn't hate it, but sleeping in is nice sometimes. In heaven, no one's, your arm isn't twisted. You behold the glory of God for all that He is and all that He has done. And worship comes naturally. When we sing songs of the glory of God, to the glory of God, it inspires us. The praise team comes up. did a great job this morning, by the way. When the glory of God is proclaimed in preaching and in singing, or even how we live our lives in submission to God, it stirs people to give glory to God. Someone who's an unbeliever might look at a Christian whose testimony is one of righteousness, of holiness, and love, and they may say, I don't believe in their God, but he believes what he's doing. He really does this. I had lunch with a, a godly young man the other day. Some guys were asking him about tithing. He said, I tithe. They said, think of how much fun you could have had with that money. They probably teased him a little bit more, but you know what they saw in that moment? A Christian who really believes God is worthy of worship. And the proof was that he took it out of his paycheck for the, in submission to God so that the church could advance the mission of God, so that missionaries could share the Gospel, give out New Testaments, meet medical needs around the world. This is what's being done. When a Christian lives for the glory of God, other people see this and go, maybe, maybe there's something to this. And it's not always in church, but Sunday morning is an important day. My sister, when she was in the hospital, she, we didn't know she was going to make it. People came and visited her and prayed with her. Pastors showed up. The whole thing. And there's an African-American woman on, in the same room on the other side of the curtain. After a few days of this, she goes, man, you, you really have a great support system. She was seeing the people of God living like the people of God. We can't fix Jennifer. But our God can. And so we're going to keep coming. We're going to keep praying. And God raised her up. Paramedics didn't think she was going to make it. They told her to her face when they saw her later because of the way she looked when they took her by life flight. And then my brother-in-law says to the woman, well, would you like us to pray for you? And she said, yes. She saw the glory of God. She saw the Gospel worked out. And she heard the Gospel. When God's people live like God's people, we bring glory to Him. We do this now on Sunday morning. We do this on Tuesday. We should do this every day. The elders and the cherubim saw the glory of God and they were inspiring each other to give worship and glory to God. Because of who He is and what He has done, heaven never ceases to worship God. He deserves our worship. In Psalm, Philippians chapter 2, it describes Jesus and it says, have the same attitude as Jesus who though He was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but willingly set aside his divine rights, willingly set, set himself up as a slave, willingly endured the cross, despising its shame. I'm putting two passages together, but I think it goes together. He dies. He's resurrected. And now he has the name that is above every name. So that the name of Christ, every knee shall bow of those in heaven and on earth and those under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we gather for worship, we are getting a taste of heaven. A day will come when every knee will bow and confess that He is Lord. For some, that will be an unhappy day. Because they will learn that the God that they had shunned whose gospel they had ignored and rejected, now they stand before Him as judge and they have no hope of salvation. Ah, but for the children of God, we've begun worshiping now in spirit and in truth. That's what we do on Sundays. That is what we do on the Lord's Day. You see, the great scandal of the universe is that the creatures, the creatures that God created Refuse to honor Him as God or give Him thanks. This theme continues throughout the book of Revelation. In chapter 15, the angels are pouring out judgment. And they're like, I read them this way. They are basically, they ask the question, who will not worship you? The angels who know who God is, who know that the Son came to give salvation to those who, who have refused to honor God as God, they, He's offered salvation, and now they're facing consequences. There's still a chance to come to Christ, and they won't honor Him as God. This is a drumbeat that keeps showing up through the book of Revelation. Put it down. Judgment is because mankind will not honor God as God or give Him thanks. They won't worship Him. started in the Garden of Eden. Satan shows up. Has God indeed said that you shouldn't eat of that one fruit of that one tree? And Eve's like, oh no, we, we can't even look at it. We can't touch it. God, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. Sure enough, they eat it. Death is a slow process. Not instantaneous. But we get tastes of death all the time. That has been our condition of all humans of all time. Thus has it been, so shall it be until Christ returns. What does that look like in day-to-day -day life? The fruit of Adam and Eve's sin. I saw a headline yesterday. A gang leader leads six teenagers to their death. That is a picture of mankind worshiping his new God rather than the real God. When, I hear, when you hear of corruption in the highest levels of government, that is mankind worshiping himself, thinking that he doesn't have to follow laws. Thus has it been, so shall it be until Christ returns and puts down the rebellion on earth. 
The great scandal of the universe is that creatures God created refuse to give Him honor as God or give Him thanks. Every problem on earth that you see exists, exists because people refuse to honor God as God and give Him thanks. Therefore, God has handed them over to judgment. They refuse to worship Him. But when we gather to worship God on Sunday, we get a foretaste of heaven. We catch a glimpse of our future. We will glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In heaven, there will not be any unhappy headlines. In heaven, there will not be bad doctor's reports. I won't have a cousin 10 years younger than me that we don't know what's going to happen for her. In heaven, families will stay intact because there's only one. In heaven, there will be no corruption because every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord and His law is the law. And we will want to obey it. There will be no temptation to sin. No one will be around telling us to sin. Satan's big deception is that he makes sin look good. That's what he did in the Garden of Eden. Could I suggest to you this morning that when you see in our world today, it's not that we've created new sins so much, it's that people have found ways to make sin look beautiful and loving. And if you speak against sin, because God spoke against us, why? You're not beautiful. And you're not loving. That is Satan's trick. Take a half-truth and turn it into a lie. Here's a half-truth. You ready? I had friends that used to say to me, my good friend of mine, I believe in God. I just don't think I have to go to church to worship Him. I can worship Him out in the trees. I can worship Him in the living room. That is actually true. You can worship in the forest. You can worship alone. It is true to say that. What is not true is to say that gathering together with brothers and sisters in Christ to proclaim the glory of God is unnecessary, therefore. One doesn't follow the other. Because I can worship God in the woods by myself, I can worship God in my house by myself. Because you can sing songs and while people look at you in the car and singing God's praises, you can do that. You should do that. But it does not follow that you shouldn't gather with brothers and sisters to worship Him. Heaven is about the business of glorifying God. See, I moved from Bible study to preaching. Just like that. When I looked at this passage, I wrestled through all the characters, all the biblical imagery that has Old Testament reference that point to it. I then said, well, this is heaven. What do we do with it? (laughs) Worshiping God is the priority of heaven. At Calvary, we talk about gather for worship, grow in personal study, and go find a place to serve. Something happens to us when we make worshiping God a priority. You know what it does? It puts all all of the responsibilities of life 
in their proper perspective. I have a duty to my sons, my daughter, my wife, my church. But all of those start making sense under the authority of God, the God that I worship. If I have put God rightly first as a husband, father, pastor, those other things start to fall in place. Not saying it's easy. It gets confusing sometimes. I get a lot of requests for things. Invited a lot of great opportunities to serve in other ways. But the glory of God sets the priorities for us. See, when we gather to worship Him, we get a foretaste of heaven. We catch a glimpse of our future as Christians because we actually belong in Revelation 4. We will be there one day. And so what's the take-home point? Sunday worship gatherings are a foretaste of heaven. Let us make them a priority. Finally, as Alex and the praise team come for our song of invitation, here's the thing. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Since the days of Adam and Eve to this day, so has it been, so shall it ever be. All have sinned. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can't get to heaven except through Jesus. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came, lived a sinless life, died on a cross in your place and mine to pay for your sin debt. And what Jesus says to you this morning is this. Turn from sin. Turn to Jesus for salvation. He will hear you. He will save you. If you'd like to call on Jesus for salvation, Come up front. I want to help you call on Jesus. He will save you. You've been listening to Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. Thank you for listening.